therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today I welcome to the show Trisha Mihal, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, who will be discussing her practice and area of specialty, Radically Open Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, or RODBT. Welcome to the show, Trisha. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Um, Yeah, it's good to be here. So tell me, uh, your licensed clinical social worker, um, tell us a little bit more about your credentials and experience. Sure. So I got my master's from UT at Austin, and I did my undergraduate work at this tiny little liberal arts college in Olympia, Washington. So I've worked in most of the different levels of care, partial hospitalization, inpatient. Um, I have a private practice now, and I've worked mostly with mental health issues, but also eating disorders. Okay. Um, What is the name of your practice? Is it your name or something else? It's called Explore Wellness. Okay, cool. Um, And do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do. So I accept Blue Cross, United, and an EAP called Lyra. Okay. And is that Blue Cross Blue Shield, is that PPO, HMO, or both? It's PPO. Okay, cool. Uh, Do you have a sliding scale? I do. It's really important to me that clients are able to access care, and I know that it's not in everyone's budget, so I like to make sure that I can be flexible. Cool. Uh, Do you have weekend or evening appointments? I do evenings. I used to do weekends, but not any longer. So I'm in the office usually Monday through Thursday, and I work until 7 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? It is. So not my first job, but my first career. I started in case management, and then I moved into more clinical positions. I've worked at hospitals. I've worked at agencies. I've worked at treatment centers. Um, And I feel like having a, a wide breadth of experience has really been helpful to me. Absolutely. 
what drew you to being a therapist? Yeah, you know, it took me a long time to figure out what I really wanted to do. I felt a lot of pressure to make like the right choice or the good choice. And I also wanted to do something that was really meaningful. And so that that combination um, made me really question every thought that I had. At first, I, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then I realized that I just care about animals too much. It's too painful. But I can deal with like human pain. I can deal with people. And so I felt like being able to sit with people in their hardest moments, being there when someone's feeling lonely or despair, that um, has been really powerful in my life. And it feels like what else could I do that's more meaningful than that? Got it. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your hobbies? What are your interests? What TV shows are you watching? Music you're listening to, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, when I'm not working, I really love crafting. Um, I learned to sew when I was little from my mom. And cool. everyone in my family is pretty, pretty crafty. So we quilt. We knit, we do um, embroidery. I'm also kind of a nerd and I really like PC gaming. So uh, my favorite game is Terraria, but lately I've been playing um, some of the clay studio games. So that's Don't Starve and Oxygen Not Included. The premise of those is like, you're this character on a desert, island or another planet and you have to figure out how to survive you have to figure out how to build a base and collect resources and kill monsters and um, I just I really enjoy I find it really fun and relaxing to to be in a totally different place and um, problem solve that sounds like a really fun game that reminds me of a tv show I'm currently watching called Alone um, it's on Hulu, and like every season, they drop off uh, ten people in remote places separate from each other, um, and basically, whoever stays the longest um, wins half a million dollars. And they're only allowed to bring ten items with them. There are no camera crews; they do all their own recording, um, so they really are cut off from everything, um, and they have to figure out how to survive both you know, physically, physiologically, and mentally. Right. You know, a client of mine told me about that show right at the beginning of the pandemic because she was really relating to what it's like to be socially alone. Mm -hmm. What it's like when you don't have any other contact for an extended period of time. It's interesting because there's some people on the show who can only go like three days. Um, and then there's other people, you know, the people who win, I, I've seen them stay out there for like 70 some days, you know. Um, so it, it's fascinating people's um, tolerance for that, I guess. Yeah. What do you think is the difference? I think that some people are just better at being alone. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that being alone is kind of a skill. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you know, while 
social contact is desirable, you know, at times we do have to know how to be alone and how to sit with ourselves and any distress that may bring up. Sure. Some of us are better at that than others, or some of us have more social needs than others. Right. Right. And a little bit of distress tolerance in there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much can I put up with something that's uncomfortable or unpleasant before I can't cope anymore? Exactly. Yeah, that'll um, tie nicely into our discussion about RODBT. Yeah, so, so tell us, what is RODBT? Yeah, RODBT is a, a behavioral therapy. It's based on dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. It's a little newer. Um, the creator is a man named Thomas Lynch, and he's been working on this for about 10 years. And to really understand DBT, it's helpful to think about a spectrum of how people cope with big emotions. So it's important to say that like, there's no right or wrong way to cope with our emotions. There's just um, the way that we're naturally predisposed. And sometimes our coping has, you know, um, some consequences to it that are not so helpful. There's advantages and disadvantages. So on one side of the spectrum, we have under controlled coping. And this is a person who has the big feelings and feels really overwhelmed by it, really struggles with how to manage, how to continue to function in life, how to communicate in relationships about their distress. Um, so one of the, the negatives to this style of coping is that sometimes we get in more trouble than we were originally. Like the way that we try to solve a problem actually makes it worse than the initial emotion was. But there's also some benefits to this style of coping. Like a person who can really experience their feelings and let it out is also a person who tends to be pretty fun, pretty exciting, maybe spontaneous. On the other side of the spectrum, we have over-controlled coping. So this is going to be a person who has the big feelings and really internalizes it. So other people might not know what they're feeling. They may not reach out to their support system at all. They might take things really seriously or be a perfectionist. Um, and they might be perceived by others as being a little bit socially distant or aloof. So there's a lot of pros to being over-controlled. And I think a lot of people can relate to this because we get a lot of positive reinforcement for over-controlled behavior. We get a lot of um, compliments about working really hard, functioning really well, appearing to be okay and to have our lives together, even if we are secretly on the inside miserable. Um, so there's some pros. Some of the cons are we might feel really lonely. We might feel like nobody actually knows us or understands us or our support system isn't going to be there when we really need them. And that can cause a lot of emotional pain. Okay. So DBT tends to address the under-controlled side of the spectrum. And RODBT tends to address the over-controlled side of the spectrum. Most of us fall somewhere in the middle. And so it's not that... Um, 
that we only use one behavior or another, but like healthy coping is this kind of mix of, am I able to reach out to people when I need it? But am I also able to manage on my own sometimes? Am I really overwhelming to my friends and family? Or do they wish that I would tell them a little bit more about what's really going on for me? Okay. So there's some fundamental differences in just the, um, the symptomology or the, uh, the issue, the presenting issue that um, RODBT and DBT treat. Um, what other differences would you say there are between RODBT and standard DBT? So a lot of the structure is similar. RODBT is by textbook. It's a collection of 30 lessons that cover lots of different topics, um, but it's different in the art. DBT is divided into four modules. So you have mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. RODBT covers most of those things, but in a slightly different way. The way that these skills apply to someone who is over-controlled is going to look really different than the way the skills are applied to someone who is under-controlled. So for DBT, we might see diagnoses like bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, some of the cluster B traits. So our DBT is going to treat conditions more like anorexia, where you see someone restricting their eating um, obsessive compulsive disorder or treatment resistant anxiety and depression. Maybe somebody who's tried a lot of the typical treatments for those conditions, but hasn't gotten relief. Okay. Um, you mentioned a few things there. What, what else is RODBT commonly used to treat? Yeah, besides anorexia, OCD, we also see it treating autism spectrum disorders because a big part of the um, focus for RDBT is understanding social signaling, making sure that we're communicating to the people around us and that we feel connected. Okay. Um, what does dialectical mean and what does holding a dialectic look like? So dialectical means holding on to two things that are both true, even if it seems like they might conflict with each other. So a common dialectic in DBT is I'm doing the best that I can and I need to do better. Being able to hold on to both of those pieces means that you can acknowledge that you're working hard, you're using the skills that you have, you're using the information that you have, and maybe it's still not working for you. Maybe you still need more skills or more information in order to be effective in that moment. So holding a dialectic um, happens all the time in therapy. There are so many moments when we can acknowledge what is and what exists and also what needs to be or what would be more functional. Okay. Um, so it sounds like um, DBT and RODBT um, are similar in some respects regarding like skills, but different in application. 
Does that sound right? Yeah, that's a good okay. way to put it. Are, you know, I know there's skills in uh, standard DBT, like uh, half smile or tip skills. Um, mm -hmm. Are, could you name uh, a few skills that are in RODBT? Are they the same names or are they different? Or There's some that are the same. So they, RODBT uses a lot of the same mindfulness skills, the how skills, the what skills. Mm -hmm. um, RODBT, like DBT, really likes acronyms. And mm -hmm. so you'll hear <laughs> um, lots of acronyms like flexible mind, definitely, flexible mind, sage, um, some things like that. And the acronyms can be helpful in that it helps you remember what the steps are for the skill. I, th I think RODBT skills are a little more complicated than our, than regular DBT. There's, they really pack a lot into each acronym. Okay. Um, is there a particular skill in RODBT that you think, um, most people would benefit from learning, um, you know, just kind of in your experience and tell us a little bit about that skill. Well, there's actually so many skills that I think people- Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> like when I talk to people about DBT and RODBT, I commonly say, like, I wish this was taught in middle school. Mm -hmm. like, I wish everybody had access to these mental health skills because we need them so bad. and we're expected to just like pick up on it from the people around us. We really don't have enough like open, transparent conversations about mental health and what it means to have a human body with emotions. And um, so for everyone, I would, I would start with some of the basic theories about emotion, that emotions are just information. They're not good or bad. They're not inherently helpful or unhelpful. They're just information and we need to listen to all of them. And there's a way to listen to them without becoming overwhelmed by them. So RODBT has some skills that help you practice listening to the emotion, being aware of what is happening in my body and what is it communicating to me? Is this something that I need to listen to and take into consideration? Or is this just another human thought that I can let float by? Cool. Um, now tell us about the radically open aspects of uh, RODBT. What does this mean? Yeah, radical openness is about a willingness to approach things that are uncomfortable. So humans are naturally inclined to back away from discomfort or to try to avoid things that don't feel good. And sometimes that's really helpful to us because it keeps us safe. But if we rely on that strategy too often, then it can keep us out of relationships. It can keep us from having important experiences. It can keep us from observing information that might be really useful in some way. So the basic idea is how do we embrace discomfort? How do we lean into that edge so that we can get that information or learn that thing that we need to understand? Got it. I read that the term radical openness posits three aspects of well-being, openness, flexibility, and social connectedness. 
What role does each of these play in RODBT? So these are the three areas where over-controlled clients typically have some deficits. We typically see that instead of being open-minded, we can be a little rigid. We can start to think we already know all of the answers or there's nothing more for us to learn here. And that can be limiting and that can challenge us in all of the arenas in our lives that can challenge our relationships, our work. Flexibility is about being able to adapt when something unexpected happens. Maybe you meet a new person that you didn't expect to meet or um, the plans change. And one of the major skills in RODBT is participating without planning. So how can I go to this party without thinking about all the conversations that I'm going to have in advance so that I feel a little more comfortable? How can I be a little more spontaneous and maybe say the thing that I'm thinking or take a risk? And then social connectedness is at the core of who we are as humans. Like as we were talking about, we all have some relational needs. Some of us are really good at being alone for a long time, but we still need people. Like humans from the very beginning have, have existed in tribes because we need to be able to protect each other. We need to be able to pool our resources and um, and if we start to limit our social connections, like not only does it not meet that need, but we may not have the same resources that other people have. We may start to suffer emotionally or um, there's or any of the types of suffering. Can you speak a little more to um, what social signaling is and what role it plays in RODBT? Yeah, social signaling is the way that we verbally or non-verbally communicate what's going on to other people. And this is really important because if you imagine being in a tribe, we need to know what's happening in our environment. We need the information that other people have. We need to know if they are safe or dangerous. We need to know if they are happy or unhappy. And we need to know how they feel about us because if someone, um, if we're engaging in behaviors that are not working well for the tribe that might get us kicked out of the tribe, we need to know it so that we can change our behavior. So social signaling is the, the sort of unspoken way that we um, are aware of other people. It might be our facial expressions. It might be our posture. Um, it might be the amount of information that we share or don't share. And this is really key because if we are signaling to other people that we are not friendly, that we are not open, or even that we're a threat, we're obviously not going to do well in our relationships. Um, so how is social signaling taught? Like what, uh, just kind of going back again to maybe a, a specific skill, um, you know, can you tell us more about a specific skill that's aimed at social signaling? 
Well, it, it starts with mindfulness and being mm-hmm. aware of what do other people think? Like, what are other people seeing from me? Are they seeing that, you know, I'm not making a lot of eye contact? Are they seeing that I'm standing in the corner with my eyes crossed? And then being able to make some guesses about how they might perceive that. Like they might think I'm not a friendly person or that they don't want to come over and talk to me. Um, and so first you have to have the awareness, but then you have to be willing to try something a little different and take a risk. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about specific ways to like increase your facial expressions a little bit, demonstrate what you're feeling, maybe, um, smile at somebody or or make direct eye contact. So we teach social signaling first by becoming mindful of how we're being perceived by others. We need to increase our awareness of what other people might be thinking or the usually unconscious communication that we're giving. I might be unconsciously communicating that I am not friendly or I am not interested in talking to you. So once we're aware of the behaviors that we're using, we can start to teach some of the behaviors that might be more effective, like making eye contact or um, showing our expressions a little more effusively, making sure that other people can actually see what we're communicating rather than having a flat affect or a face that just looks blank. Okay. Now, regarding mental flexibility, um, are there any specific skills you'd like to mention regarding that? So RODBT teaches that thoughts are just thoughts. Like human brains have a million thoughts a day and some of them are accurate and some of them are not. Some of them are helpful and some of them are not. And so the, the lesson in mental flexibility is being able to Um, check in with ourselves about our thoughts and maybe create a little distance, maybe take a step back and say, is this actually something I want to be thinking? Is this something that's helping me in this moment? Or am I just being um, like unnecessarily rigid? Am I relying on information that I already know that may not even be applicable to the situation? And how can I open myself up Um, and think about how there's perspectives that I don't know. There's things that I don't even know that I don't know about. You know, it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is like increasing insight and uh, mindfulness um, sound like important based skills. Um, Is the approach to mindfulness different in RODBT um, versus DBT or in the way that they're taught or, you know, just kind of that sort of stuff. Some of it is similar and some of it is a little different. You know, um, you talk about increasing insight and I think RODBT is really meant to help us become more aware of um, the things that are unhelpful to us, but also the things that we don't really want to acknowledge about ourselves. Like maybe I have some behaviors that I'm not proud of. Maybe there's some things that I do that I feel really ashamed about. Like lying to people or making excuses or defending myself when what I really want is to feel connected. 
So RODBT, I would say one of the main um, mindfulness skills is loving kindness meditation. And in a, a typical loving kindness meditation, you are first um, finding a sense of warmth in yourself. You're finding that place in you where the, the comfort and the soothing emotions come from. And then you're sending it out to others in your world. And traditional loving kindness includes yourself, like being able to send some warmth and some love to yourself. And sometimes that's just too hard to do. Like sometimes we are just not feeling it, but we can access that love and that warmth for other people. And so some of the, the questions you might ask yourself or the, um, the thoughts you might have during a loving kindness meditation would be, who is someone that that I care about and already have warm feelings towards? Can I get in touch with some contentment or some ease and send them some joy, send them some security? Um, the point of this is not necessarily to like feel more loving or kind towards anybody, but as we do this process, it act activates our neural substrates for safety, for social safety. It helps us be more curious, maybe be more interested in other people. Um, it motivates us to be more engaged with other people. And those are some of the things that we really struggle with when we're a little over-controlled. Okay, makes sense. Um... What sorts of treatment settings is RODBT typically found in and what sort of time commitment can one pursuing RODBT expect to make? It, it varies pretty widely. So you can see RODBT skills in any level of care from outpatient therapy, intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, or inpatient. The textbook curriculum is meant to be a weekly skills group. So many people, maybe eight to 10 people who meet once a week to almost take a class in each of these concepts. And if you imagine doing it all 30 lessons once a week, it takes about six or seven months to get through the whole curriculum. Okay, cool. Um, would you say there are any misconceptions about RODBT? Well, I'm not sure that a lot of people know about RODBT, so maybe not specific to that, but I think one of the misconceptions with DBT in general is that it's only for clients who are really struggling. Like maybe it's only for clients with a borderline diagnosis or clients who are suicidal, maybe clients who've attempted suicide. And while it was designed for those populations, DBT is, is really widely applicable. Um, it can help, you know, it can help any, anybody, whether they have a diagnosis or not. Um, these are skills that, like I said, like, I really wish we could just learn them in life and not have to do any sort of treatment because yeah. it's about managing your brain as a human, managing right. your human body, figuring out like, how do I do this life thing? with these emotions and these experiences and these reactions I'm having. Yeah, we're not born with a user handbook, unfortunately. <laughs> no, we're not. 
Wouldn't that be helpful? Um, is there anything I haven't asked about DBT that you think would be helpful for people to know about DBT? Oh, I'm sure, but I don't know that I can think <laughs> of any questions right now. Okay. Um, well, switching gears to you as a practitioner, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? I always try to be really aware of underprivileged or underserved communities in the work that I'm doing. And I've encountered them in every setting across the board. Um, I think it's really important that we can provide specific tailored treatment for these populations because treatment isn't, isn't designed for them necessarily. Treatment is, is designed for like the middle or upper class, generally white folks. And it's, you know, sometimes that's transferable, but sometimes there's pieces that we're leaving out. So for example, I have done a lot of work in the eating disorder community and I've worked with a lot of transgender individuals who struggle with disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And sometimes their concerns are the same as others, but sometimes they're very different. And sometimes the things that are triggering or painful for them are not what you would see with, you know, your average person with an eating disorder. So I've worked really hard to make sure that I'm educated and that I'm available to LGBT populations, to um, people at lower socioeconomic statuses, and to people of color. Awesome. Yeah, uh, eating disorders are very prevalent in the trans population, unfortunately, for, I mean, for, I think, obvious reasons. <laughs> right, you know? and I think that it's hard to find treatment centers that mm -hmm. know how to work with a trans individual. It's hard to find therapists who have availability mm -hmm. with that education, and it's so crucial that they get the treatment they need. Yeah. Okay. Um, how are your sessions structured, if any? So I'm mostly a process therapist, even though I work based on behavioral therapies, DBT and ROVBT. Um, most of my sessions are spent um, talking as the client needs to about whatever's on their mind or whatever they need to work through that week. But I do also think about how to incorporate skills sometimes. So sometimes I'll consider resources for clients or some of the handouts from the DBT or RODBT workbooks about, um, because like sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes we just need to read about another option or someone needs mm -hmm. to say, like, you can try this thing and this might work for you. Let's give it a shot. And you don't have to find it on your own. You don't have to come up with something you don't know how to do. Yeah. Okay. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? So my initial sessions are um, spent gathering some history, but also I want, I want to know what you need from a therapist. I want to know how we're going to know if therapy is working for you, how we're going to know if 
I'm a good fit? And what's going to happen if I say something you don't like or I offer some advice that doesn't work for you? Um, I, I like to really start to um, prepare us for the work and all of the different situations we might encounter. I find that it, it sets the stage for what therapy is going to be like going forward. And that helps you make a decision about if you want to do this or not, because right. sometimes it's not easy. Yeah, I agree. I always uh, talk with my clients in the first session about how therapy is not an easy thing, you know? Yeah. Sometimes we don't feel better after a therapy session. And right. To say it because people go to therapy to feel better, but sometimes we need to feel worse for a little bit. Sometimes we need to get in touch with the emotions or the experience or the pain in order to move on from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always say that, you know, sometimes things get worse before they get better. Yeah. Um, sometimes we feel better because we've been avoiding something that we actually really need to look at. Right. Okay. How would you say your clients uh, describe or experience you? I would say um, most clients experience me as being warm and non-judgmental. I have a client who will sometimes say, oh, that's, that's the soothing thing you always say. And I appreciate it so much. Um, I also have gotten feedback from clients that I can be pretty direct. I will say what's real, even if it's hard. And um, some clients really appreciate that. Some clients struggle with that sometimes. Yeah. I think that uh, being direct in DBTR or DBT is kind of comes with the ter- comes with the territory, you know. Sometimes you just have to say the thing that's mm-hmm. in the room, um, and you can do it gently. You can do it tactfully, but it's not helpful to ignore it or right. tiptoe around it. And that's what I tell my clients too, because I'm, I'm very direct. Um, and I tell them that the first session um, and that, uh, you know, I'm always going to do it in a, a kind, gentle way, but it's not going to benefit you to let you keep doing the same things you've always done. You know, yeah. I think um, a lot of clients experience that as a relief, like, oh, I can trust you to tell me what you're thinking. Right. You're not going to let me get away with some of these behaviors that really aren't working for me. Right. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? I laugh a lot more often than I cry with my clients. I find humor really important and helpful. Um, And, you know, I I will cry if the situation warrants it, but I find that that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. I find that if, if I start to take up space in the room, my emotions start to take up space, then I'm not always doing my client the service that they're there for. Right. Right. How do you define holding space for someone? You know, I can't always fix it. Like clients come to therapy with something that is a problem, something that they want to work on. And I'd actually say most of the time I can't fix it. I can't make it better but I can be with you. 
And sometimes that's all we need is someone to just be with us in a totally authentic place to be as real as real can be, to be totally yourself and still be accepted and wanted and loved. So holding space is about just being there no matter what comes and we can get through anything. Cool, I like that answer. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? So when I was doing my DBT training, I had a supervisor offer me the phrase, um, gentle pressure applied relentlessly. And I have used that and thought about that so much throughout my career. The idea is that um, you can be gentle, you can be soft, but you're still going to put some pressure. You're still going to push for some change because it's not beneficial to anyone to stay stuck. I like that. Can you say it one more time gently? What? Gentle pressure applied relentlessly. Like I'm going to be a rock. I am going to be here. I really like that. It is so helpful and effective with my really severe chronic eating disorder clients because sometimes they're just so um, underwater with their condition and it can take years of sessions of being patient and kind and reminding them that there's something else available to them. There, There is a life raft and it might take a long time for us to get there, but we're going to grab on and we're going to swim together. What have you learned personally about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, so many things. This is such a complicated and and big question, but I know, (laughs) (laughs) but so I have a dialectic, um, which is we are all so similar and we are all so different. Sometimes it's amazing to me how universal our experiences are. Like I can hear something really similar from five different clients who are in completely different stages of life, dealing with completely different issues. Um, You know, if you're feeling it, I've probably heard about it in therapy before. It's pretty rare that somebody says something that just, you know, is unexpected, but at the same time, everyone is so different. And I might have five clients who experience the same event and come at it from completely different places. So for example, the pandemic, we're all going through the same thing, but I have some clients who are enjoying the isolation and I have lots of clients who are really struggling for all of the different reasons that come with being isolated. Kind of goes back to the show that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. (laughs) In the same situation and the outcome can be totally different. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, What do you do to take care of yourself? What do you mean by that? Like just to take care of yourself, self-care, what do you do for fun? Like what 
re-energizes you after a long Mm -hmm. week at the office, you know, those sorts of things. Like what keeps you, what things do you do for yourself? Um, You know, being a therapist that help you continue to be a therapist. Sure. Well, there's professional things that I do and then there's personal things that I do. Right. So professionally, I'm in a fantastic consultation group. I meet with them regularly so that I can um, get feedback from other clinicians and use the power of many brains in the same space. I also really value education and I'm always doing some kind of training or reading a book or um, learning something because I just really value like absorbing all of the information that I can. Um, It's also really important to me to keep up to date on best practices related to working with vulnerable populations. So I like to make sure that I'm doing something to become more educated about anti-racism or working with trans folks or um, working with people who are undocumented. Okay, cool. What about personally? So personally... I mostly think about self-care as like treating myself with compassion. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to think about like self-care. Oh, I'm going to take a hot bath or, you know, give myself a manicure. But um, when I'm doing really good self-care, I am being gentle with myself. I can approach with myself with some humor without throwing myself under the bus or being sarcastic about it. I can remember that, I have a silly human brain, just like everybody else's. And sometimes that works really well for me and sometimes not so much. Um, And then there's an element also of like, self-care is about being easy on myself, but it's also about like holding myself accountable. Sometimes the most caring thing I can do is to make that phone call that I've been putting off so that it doesn't weigh on me for the rest of the week. Right. Yeah. I, I kind of resent the way self-care is like widely conceptualized as taking a, a hot bath and like, you know, painting your nails. Like there's so much more to self-care, like setting boundaries, being assertive, you know, right. like, there's so much more to self-care than just those things. And I, I, they're just not talked about enough. Well, and I wonder why not, like, why do we sort of easily talk about taking a bath, but it's harder to say, you know, I set some really clear boundaries with my family today, or I told a friend, no, I can't Mm -hmm. help her out with this task that she needs. I, I don't know why we stray away from that. I think it's because it's hard. <laughs> well, that and, you know, you were talking about you wish all these things were taught in school. Personally, I wish that assertiveness and healthy boundaries was taught in school because yeah. that is something that everybody needs. I mean, especially, you know, the population that I work with, trans folks. But, I mean, everybody benefits from that. And I work with so many people around those things all the time. Sure. You say it's hard and... It's also hard to be a people pleaser. It's right. hard to agree to help someone with a task that you are going to feel resentful about later. So it's it's kind of a choice of which hard 
Am right. I going to choose the hard in the moment or the hard that will take good care of me? I think people, I think people choose the hard that they know because yeah. people are widely fear the unknown. You know, I also get that pretty often. Uh, and I think it's normal to fear the unknown. Sure. And sometimes that helps us stay safe. And sometimes right. that makes our world really small. Right. Okay. Good discussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician? So really, um, really early in my career, I was working at this agency that had this huge detailed assessment. It was like 23 pages and they wanted you to be very specific about how you asked the questions. So I'm sitting with this client and I get totally jumbled up. I'm talking about substance abuse and the words that come out of my mouth are, have you ever tried alcohol? And this woman is 40 years old and she just looks at me like, oh, and she says, you know, I think I'd like to work with a different therapist. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I'm going to go talk to my supervisor. And it, it actually turned out to be a helpful moment because my supervisor reminded me that like, I'm competent. I know what I'm doing. And just because this person maybe has some judgments or... I slip up that that doesn't mean that I'm doing anything badly. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes uh, being a therapist is hard. <laughs> I think is what it boils down to, right? you know, it's, and we, we all make mistakes. Yeah. And when we can make those mistakes gracefully and model right. what it looks like to repair and Repair. Yeah. To acknowledge it, to take responsibility, to not be too shaming and to move on. I think that's a skill we all need. Absolutely. Um, how would you define happiness? I think about happiness as a really small concept, like little moments where joy outweighs everything else. Um, Life can be so hard and so sad and unfair and painful. And I think if we, if we try to look at like an overall state of happiness or contentment, it, it's too hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think about just the, like the brief flashes of light that we can hold on to. Yeah. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yourself? I am in therapy and I've been in therapy forever. I've done a lot of individual work and I've also done group work. And I can't say enough good things about being in a therapy group. Like I know that it can be a hard concept to wrap your mind around. It can feel really vulnerable, but I just, I can't even tell you how much I have learned and how much it has improved my relationships to be in a therapy group. That's great. I mean, I think that we have to do everything we can to destigmatize mental health therapy as therapists. And I think a part of that is, um, you know, being open that therapists have therapists too, you know? Mm -hmm. And our therapists have therapists and yep. they have therapists. And this is, this is a healthy thing for us. This is a really important part of our well-being, just like eating and drinking and 
exercising. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you or RODBT? Well, um, two things about me. One is that I really, I really love this work and I feel really honored to be able to sit with clients. Sometimes I just get this reminder that not everybody gets to do this. Not everybody gets this window into what it's really like to be a person. The other thing is I really like to collaborate. So I do a lot of work with eating disorders and that means I do a lot of um, releases of information to talk with other people on the treatment team. So it's not unusual to need a doctor or a dietitian or another provider of some kind in order to help you get the care that you need And the more that we can be on the same page, the more effective I can be. So I like to be able to talk to your psychiatrist about the meds you're on or to get some advice from maybe your couples therapist or someone you've worked with before. Um, My job is to be of service to you. And the more information I have, the better I can do that. Right, right. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show, Trisha. I appreciate it. Yeah, you are very welcome. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. Today's episode marks the last episode of the first season. I've had so much fun doing this podcast and have some really exciting things planned for next year. Stay tuned for the first episode of Season 2, which will be released on January 10th of 2021, and will feature Jody Miller, Licensed Professional Counselor Associate, supervised by Sharon Bien, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who will be discussing her practice and specialty, Dissociative Identity Disorder, through the lens of both professional and lived experience. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmit Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmit Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmit.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash about nextquest podcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.